So let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing a, such a large group of people interested in Holy Scripture and the meaning. Uh, we ask your blessing on our efforts today. Uh, help them to be satisfied. Help all of you to be satisfied uh, with what you are hearing uh, so that it brings you closer to the Lord. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Let's get on to the, the meeting and the subject of today. I just know you're all dying to uh, understand what the big secret is in uh, the book of Revelation. Let's take uh, the handout that you received, because... There's a number of things in there that I think are worthwhile, and it would be nice if I had a copy for myself. All right, let us, let us begin. The one thing that uh, is a little different from previous sessions of this kind is that there will not be a book that I will give you like this, which we have used in the past. The reason is, I want to simplify the way we approach this book of Revelation. I have up here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten different books that I am using in the course of providing the information for this class. Some of them go from one extreme to the other. This book here is so simplified that it really doesn't tell you much of anything. Right? Here are some uh, very early versions of this book. Um, they're a little old-fashioned, and the language is a little stiff. All right? So then this book is a little better but it gives you too much information. This book, I highly, highly recommend. It is not on the book of Revelation directly, but it has a lot of information that relates to it. Catholicism by, it's now Bishop Robert Barron. Here's a lovely book if you can uh, sit up all night, 750 pages devoted entirely to the book of Revelation. It minces every single word there ten times over. Uh, and I don't, even though it's, it's good, there's a lot of good information in there. By the time you get to the bottom of a given page, you forget what the subject matter was in the first place. Here's another book that is not related directly to Revelation, but offers a great deal of insight to it. Here's another book that I really like. Um, it's entitled Revelation in its original meaning. Well, original, who knows what that means. All right. And this is the, the best of them all, I, I believe. All right, but what I'm going to do is to take it a little differently and provide you with handouts 
because the book of Revelation is based almost exclusively on Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament properly, and the parts that are related to the book of Revelation, then it will give you the background. And if you don't understand the background of the book of Revelation, you're not going to get it, regardless of how many books you read, or how big or small they might be. You have to understand what's going on in the society to which this book is addressed. Now, let's... <coughs> let's go to the handout here. I'd like you to turn to the part that says major points to understand <coughs> Somebody put that up all the way up to 85 or something like that. I thought it was a little much. All right. The book of Revelation was not written for people in the 21st century. It was written to the people of the first century A.D. You have to understand and think back when you're reading it as if you were in the first century A.D. And it is addressed both to the Jewish people who accepted Christ, as well as the Jewish people who rejected him. (coughs) Pardon me. You have both the good and the bad, you might say. So, there's like two divisions, you mean. We might say that this book is addressed to two distinct groups. The negatives, the non-believers, and the positives, the believers. And that makes it easy for uh, a division for modern readers. In today's society, in today's society, we generally have those who are believers in Christ and those who are not. However, just being a believer is not enough. God wants more from us than just mere acceptance. And so this book is addressed to all mankind and is just as meaningful today as it was at the end of the first century when it was first written. What's going on in the first century? We must keep in mind that what is going on in this tumultuous first century A.D., the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ set off a new belief system that gave Jews and Gentiles a new hope and something to believe in. And before the New Testament scriptures were written, that is beginning in around 50, the year 50 A.D. However, As the letters of Paul in the first of the Gospels, that is Mark, began to circulate, and non-Jewish converts came into the fold, opposition began to develop strongly. Paul's letters (coughs) 
Paul's letters testify to this. By the year 66 AD, this opposition had developed into an all-out war between the Jewish leaders and the Christians. Christians of all kinds, both and primarily the Jewish people who became Christians. It was at this point that the Romans stepped in. (coughs) I've got to apologize for this, but there's not much I can do about it. It was at this point that the Romans stepped in to put down the rebellion, which resulted in a war lasting three and a half years and ended with the destruction of Jerusalem. Thank you. Destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It must have seemed like the end of the world to those people being affected. Now, you can understand, I hope, that the people of that time period were going through a terrible, terrible time. Jesus himself, in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 24 and 25, talk about the tumultuous times that the believers would be going through shortly after his death and resurrection. And, of course, Jesus knew that in advance, and that's exactly what happened. First of all, the Christians, the Jewish converts, that is, wanted to continue their Jewish faith. There was no separation at that time between Christianity and Judaism. That didn't really happen until much, much later. They tried to remain good, faithful Jewish people. But as they began to practice their Christian faith and invite non-Jewish people to gather with them, and particularly when they decided to bring uh, Gentiles into the synagogues, the Jewish people who rejected the idea of Christ or Christianity uh, became furious. And you had a problem beginning to develop right then and there. It was the Jewish people who started to persecute the Christians. And Paul talks a great deal about that in some of his his writings. And, as I said, Jesus predicted that that would happen. So many of the Christians, the converted Jews, moved out of Israel and up into uh, Turkey, or what is currently uh, the country of Turkey, and over into Syria, and began to develop their own form of Christianity there. Remember, there was no official church. There was no pope at the time, even though Paul, or rather Peter, was declared sort of the head of the apostles. That did not take the form that we know about it today. You had a number of problems that 
developed <coughs> between converted Jewish people and those who rejected Christ. Uh, and that seemed to continue even down to the present time. If you have known any Jewish <coughs> uh, friends who convert to Catholicism, well, Christianity of any form, but primarily to Catholicism, many cases they are just totally cut off from the rest of the family. This is not so much uh, evident out here on the West, but if you come from uh, New England, New York, uh, anywhere on the East Coast, you'll see that uh, even today. If a member of a Jewish family becomes a Christian, or and particularly a Catholic, they are automatically considered dead. And that's uh, terribly unfortunate. And if they are still uh, not considered dead, there's a, amount, there's a tremendous amount of animosity going back and forth, and it just makes it very uncomfortable for everybody. And, you know, that is exactly what happened in the first century A.D. So, Revelation is talking to both sides. And I'll get to that as we go along. Now, the style. Revelation, excuse me. Revelation is written in a style called apocalyptic. The word apocalyptic is Greek, and it means revelation. Oh, that, you know, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. But it is also indicative of a style or a genre of literature that was very common, very prominent from about the second century BC to towards the end of the first century, even to the second century AD. It was a style that was uh, prominently uh, used by the educated people. Uh, but it didn't develop in the second century. It goes all the way back uh, to the sixth century. Much of the book of Ezekiel, and I'm going to have you read a lot of the book of Ezekiel, uh, is written in the form of, of apocalyptic. And that comes from the, uh, well, actually the early part of the uh, 8th century, no, 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 6th century uh, B.C., But the conditions at that time were just as bad. Ezekiel was captured by the Babylonians around the year 597 B.C. and carted off to Babylon along with a number of the Jewish people. The second wave of that uh, military effort by the Babylonians happened in 587 B.C. 
when they captured and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and carted off more people to Babylon. It was the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel that finally turned that situation around from woe is me to let's gather together and get this thing going and moving again. <clears throat> if it were not for Ezekiel, uh, the Jewish people would have just uh, languished in self-pity and withered away like the Syrians did in the 8th century BC. The Assyrians captured the northern uh, country of Israel and carted off most of those people to Assyria in the around the year 722 BC. All right. And those people never returned to Israel. In their place, many of the Assyrians were brought, the no, uh, the no good people, or the ones thought to be no good, the, uh, prisoners, uh, the lame, the disadvantaged, etc., etc. And they became the Samaritans, of the later time period. And I won't go into that because it's not pertinent to our uh, meeting today, but one of the things I want to talk about is that over and over and over again, the Jewish people were lifted up by God only to turn their backs on God and reject what he wanted of them. The main thing that he wanted of them was to be a model community of loving people who would reflect his message to the other nations. They were to be a light to the nations. And they constantly rejected that. Revelation speaks to that particular point over and over. And its message is as if God were saying to you and to the people of the first century, I have tried over and over and over to get you to come and join me in providing a message to everyone. And you have rejected it. You have refused to come. You have refused to live in the way I want you to. My burden is light. And my message is sweet. <clears throat> but the people constantly rejected him. And we have the same thing today. We have people that are so busy with their iPads and their smartphones and uh, the sports and movies and television that they don't have time for God and they could care less because everything is going so well. And that is a big danger for all of us 
because we are all being caught up in the problems that are coming from that attitude. But getting back to the style, (coughs) apocalyptic language is a style that includes visions, dreams, metaphors, all kinds of symbolisms, and it is there to, for a very, for a variety of reasons. It's there to entice people. It's there to encourage people. It's there because it's a interesting and different style. It's there to confuse and one of its main objectives, it is there to disguise what it is truly saying. Let me give you an example. The whole book of the prophet Daniel. Daniel is written in almost exclusively apocalyptic language. Particularly chapters 7 through 11. It was written in the 2nd century B.C. when the Greek kings, particularly Antiochus IV, overran Israel, capturing or trying to capture the lives and the hearts of the Jewish people. They rejected him. And it was through the efforts of the Maccabee family that eventually routed the Greeks out. But while they were going through this tumultuous time period, someone, and we are not certain who the writer is of the book of Daniel, wrote these various articles. Each chapter of the book of Daniel stands by itself. It's like a a story all of its own. Very interesting, and there are some very beautiful prayers in the book of Daniel that are used in the liturgy of the hours of the Catholic Church. It is used to give hope to the people to whom it is addressed, that is, the Jewish people of that time period. Its main message is stay with your belief system and don't give up. Regardless of what happens, don't give up. We have the story in uh, the book of Daniel uh, where the mother uh, of seven sons is captured and tortured because uh, they refuse to give up. And one by one, uh, each son is tortured in front of the mother and forced uh, to eat pork and do other things that uh, are abominations to the Jewish people of that time period. And the mother is forced to watch them being executed one by one. And in the end, the mother is also executed. These are not real stories of history. 
they are stories of hope. And they are stories as opposed to history. You understand the difference? We, we would call that today a historical novel. Well, that's not exactly what I would call the book of Daniel, but nevertheless, that is some way to treat it. Revelation is doing the same thing because you have the same kind of problem going on. doesn't make any difference who the perpetrator of the problem is. The same effort and the same conditions exist in the first century A.D. as did in the second century B.C. or the sixth century or the eighth century B.C. The whole idea and the message is Jesus is trying to tell us to have hope in him. And he will then reward us, maybe not in this life, but in the life to come, he will reward us. And so you have to keep that whole idea in mind of what the purpose is. And that's why... On this handout, and every handout I think I've given people over the past several years, has this illustration. This illustration is of God's plan of salvation, which overrides everything that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit have done, are doing, or will do in the future. It is all based on God's plan of salvation with the Trinity shown here of God being one God, but three persons. Each has his own role and place in God's plan of salvation. The Father was responsible for creating and developing the whole Jewish nation and all of the writings that came from the Jewish nation. Then the Son picks up from there and takes over to provide the main ingredient of this plan, which is the divine sacrifice of God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, making reparation for all the sins of all mankind. Then the last part is the Holy Spirit taking the benefits and the information, the education and the experience that came from the first two parts and working with each of us individually and through the church to bring us back to the Father. The whole objective is for mankind to return to the Father. But you've got to remember, and this is one thing that many people either aren't aware of or don't want to be aware of it, or don't want to bother, is that the laws of divinity 
the laws of God, the laws that God has to sort of follow, is that mankind, sinful mankind, cannot live with divine God on a permanent basis or for any extended period of time. And that is why you have often heard throughout <clears throat> scripture of the phrase, be holy because I am holy. Anyone not hear that? You familiar with that? Sometimes it'll be, be holy because I am holy, or for I am holy, or something of that kind. It is, when I, I prefer the word because I am holy, in other words, God is telling us to be holy so that we can come back to him and be with him in heaven forever. That is the whole purpose of purgatory because many of us, probably most of us, don't measure up to perfect holiness. And therefore, when we reach our time, end of our time here on earth, and though we may not have any great sins on our soul at the time, we may have minor things that need to be corrected or provided for in some way. And so the purpose of purgatory is to provide that extreme means of cleansing. The word purgatory comes from our word purging. Purging of sin. Purging of the uh, effects or the result of things that we have done that we shouldn't have. All right? Before we can enter heaven. And then, once we have been purged of all of that, we are then holy enough to enter heaven forever. The good thing about purgatory, I always have to add, is that we know that at some point in, in time, um, we will get to heaven. Okay. So, you have to keep in mind this whole idea of God's plan of salvation. Now, if you turn that over, there's, I've tried to put that into words for a little bit better understanding. God in his infinite wisdom, his love and mercy, devised a plan to permit mankind to interact with him after mankind's sin. The ultimate objective of this plan was a way of mankind to eventually reach heaven and be reunited with his creator after his time on earth was completed. This plan began with a covenant made first with Abraham and renewed down through the ages with other leaders of the Jewish nation. It took the form of a family, a community, a nation that would live according to the teachings that were handed down from God through their leaders, priests, prophets, and others, and would evolve into a model, loving community that would be a light to the nations. 
God worked with and through these leaders of the Jewish people for 2,000 years. And much was accomplished. But the primary objective was of no interest to the Jewish leaders. In other words, they were not interested in going out and sharing God's message with those around them. In fact, they did just the opposite. They became a very exclusive nation unto themselves. See, uh, this whole idea of being a light to the nations comes from Isaiah uh, chapter 49, verse 6. God worked with and through these leaders, as I said. (coughs) Although the Jewish people offered many sacrifices and oblations to God, none was sufficient to take away sin or remove the barrier that developed between God and mankind by sin. And therefore, God had to give mankind some way, something to be offered that would satisfy and resolve this breach between them. This gift was God himself in the form of Jesus Christ, who, in becoming man, took upon himself the sins of all mankind for all time to the cross as a living and yet divine offering, which was sufficient to resolve the sins of all humanity and open a path to eventually being reunited with the Father. This act of self-giving of God himself is the sign of a new covenant, the new and eternal covenant that is offered freely to mankind and is celebrated daily in the Holy Mass of the Catholic Church. It's acceptance, assurance, eternal life with God. Its rejection results, unfortunately, in eternal damnation. There is no other alternative. It's either, and I hate to put it this way, but you've heard the phrase over and over, it's either God's way or the highway. Okay? And that is what Revelation is trying to get through to everyone that God has given us every means of making or, or, or following him. He's told us over and over and over of what he is interested in. He's asking you to pray so that you better understand your particular role in God's plan of salvation because we all have a small part to play in this plan. It is not like this is solely up to the priest or the pope or the, you know, the bishops or anyone else. Each one of us has a part to play in this plan. And God is asking you to pray that you understand what your particular role is. We cannot sit back and let Somebody else do all the work. Salvation is a joint effort among all mankind. It is not a church-related thing only. Is there any questions on that? Anyone have any problem understanding that?
Well, that's good. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Well, you 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 think about it. All right. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's t- turn on the other side of that page. Some people believe that God just sprinkled the earth with humanity and left us to fend for ourselves. You know, there there's a whole group of people called theists. T-H-E-I-S-T. Theists. Meaning people who believe that there is a God but that, all right, so he made everything, and that's the end of it, as far as his role is concerned, that he is not interested in the personal lives of each of us. And I think, how sad. All of us has a yearning to belong to someone, to something, to have some idea, some identity, some purpose in life. And that is what God is trying to give us. That identity, that purpose. The fact that God made us and sprinkled uh, the earth with humanity uh, did not leave us alone, as some people believe. Nothing could be further from the truth. If it were, there would have been no need for God in the form of our Lord Jesus Christ to come to earth as a member of the same humanity and then give his life as a sacrificial offering in reparation for the sins of all humanity. Because if God just sprinkled us down here and could care less about what happened afterwards, there would have been no need or purpose for Christ himself and the horrible death uh, that he went through. God has a plan, and his <clears throat> God has a plan, and he had this plan even before he created man. That plan is to bring all of those who remain faithful to him or are faithful to him at the time of their death back into heaven at some point after death. Those who reject God in Jesus Christ or ignore him and his teachings are destined for eternal damnation. It all comes down to an either-or choice. This may seem unfair, but God has given humanity warning after warning after warning, and still, some people do not get the message. This, then, is the purpose of the book of Revelation, to give mankind one last message because there will be no more. The book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And many people say, well, that's because that was the last book written. Well, we're not certain of that. No one is certain of exactly what year in the last century that it was written. But it is there because it is the last time 
God is going to remind us in an official written way coming directly from him. And that is what Revelation is all about. Yes, Dick. What about all the letters of the doctors and the church? Those are interpretations of what God has given us. But they are not revealing something new about God. All of what God has tried to give mankind is contained in the Bible. And nothing new has been given to him down through the last 2,000 years that was not somehow referred to in the Bible. Yes, all of the apparitions of God himself, that is Jesus Christ, and Mary particularly, do not tell us anything new about God. They may <clears throat> tell us something that God is asking of people, but it would not be something new. Yeah. Right. Any other questions? Any questions on anything so far? Uh, <laughs> Let us go through a little bit of the rest of the book of Revelation. Revelation is based entirely on a repeating of what has been told in the past, beginning with the book of Ezekiel. Uh, jumping to the book of Daniel and to some of the prophets. And people will often wonder, well, why does the book of Revelation uh, have such weird language and strange uh, scenes, etc., etc.? Part of it, as I've said before, is because it is written in a type of literature that was popular uh, towards the end of the uh, Old Testament time period, the last two centuries before Christ and for the first two centuries since Christ. But the idea of uh, literature of this kind never did die out. Let me give you some examples of some of the more modern versions of this. Uh, now, this might sound kind of funny or silly, but what about uh, Alice in Wonderland? It is written in a way of fantasy. It is written in a way of visions. The uh, follow-up to Alice in Wonderland is called Alice Through the Looking Glass. Uh, the whole idea of stepping through a looking glass into a totally different world. That was written in the early part of the 20th century. Before that, you had uh, the Divine Comedy, goes written by Dante all the way back to the 13th century. 
That was written in sort of a uh, idea of fantasy. Uh, what about the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's book that came out uh, around 1958, I believe it was. All right. That is total fantasy. More recently, you had the whole Harry Potter series. And even more recently than that, you have all the Star Wars series. So mankind is intrigued by fantasy. Uh, so the book of Revelation was written in that particular style, hoping to improve um, not so improve, but encourage people <coughs> to read it in order to be tantalized, uh, to be confused, be intrigued, whatever. And we're going to w work through that so that you can get to understand. Now, the other thing that you need to understand is there isn't an explanation for a lot of it. Most of it is strictly literary style. What's important is that you get the message of what Revelation is all about. It's not a lot of secrets. There's no great mystery in there about the end of the world or when the end of the world is going to happen. When Christ himself was asked when would be the end time? He said that he himself did not know. That is, the human Jesus did not know. The divine Jesus was not answering that question at the time. Um, and he added that it is not for mankind to know when the end of the world is going to happen. So obviously... That is not embedded in a secret code of some kind in the book of Revelation. The end time is whenever you die. That is your end time. And that is something that you can do about it. Something that you can do on your own to... Uh, ensure your entry into heaven because through prayer again you can develop who and what God's will is and develop your relationship with him that's the whole answer your relationship with God is what is important and the end of the world uh, is really of no value, no meaning, uh, because there's nothing you can do about it. For next week, we will get into the book itself. I hope that what you have, uh, what we have talked about today is of some help. And if you have questions, we will turn to that in a few minutes. But for next week, for our meeting next week, that's February the 8th, please read from your own Bibles.
the introduction that might be there, plus chapter 1 through chapter 3. These chapters introduce the reader to the idea of visions and commands from heaven. In this case, the command is to write letters to the seven churches of Asia. This area became the center of Christianity after the Jews began to persecute the Christians. The content of each letter is spelled out in the form of an instruction and a warning. If you refer to this next schedule there, I hope that it's there. This one here. This is sort of a grid that I put uh, the essence of each of these seven letters into. The purpose of giving you this is to show you that there's a great deal of similarity. Now, if you go to the map on the back of that schedule, you'll see the seven cities or villages to whom these letters are addressed. These are all in Turkey or what is today Turkey. The whole idea here is that Christianity, even though it began in Israel, around Jerusalem, because of the persecution, most of the Christians moved out of Israel to Turkey or Syria and developed their own communities. Now, a few things that you must understand. These letters were not written just to these communities. If you'll see from the schedule, <laughs> the grid, they are similar things being addressed to each one. The meaning for that is that what is said to one really applies to all of these cities and applies to all mankind even today. Don't let this box you in to think that what is being addressed here is being addressed to one city only. It is really being addressed to all Christian communities for all time. And look at it that way when you read it. That it is applying to all mankind. What we will deal with next week are the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, but look at them as two distinct parts. The vision part and the letter part. If you keep in mind just those two things, and hopefully by the end of next week's session, you'll get to understand what those particular parts are really all about, 
and how they applied to the people of the first century and how do they apply to people today. Don't worry about all the rest of the stuff in that book. If you want to read ahead, that's up to you. But read the opening two or three chapters of both the book of Ezekiel and the book of Daniel. Neither of them are very long, and both of them are very interesting. Try to put them in the context that I've described earlier. Ezekiel is the 6th century, and he's writing from Babylon. Daniel is the 2nd century, but what he's doing is he is addressing the people of the 2nd century but he is putting the time period and many of the uh, names and places back into the 6th century to avoid persecution further by the Greeks at the time. In many ways, that is why the writer of the book of Revelation is putting things into a weird context is to avoid persecution by the Romans so that he can get his letter out without further uh, persecution. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, uh, do we have any questions? Yes, Dick. Would you do me a favor and pronounce each of the seven? Pronounce each know, of the I know how to pronounce. Yes. All right. Dick has asked that I pronounce the names of these cities. All right. The first one is Ephesus. Many of you are familiar with Ephesus because this is where John the Evangelist and Mary, the mother of God, lived after the persecution started in Israel. They moved to Ephesus. At least that is what uh, we are told. There is no proof for that, even though there, if you've gone on a tour of Ephesus, uh, they will say this is where John and Mary lived. Well, you got to take that with, you know, a little... All right. The next one is Smyrna. Smyrna. The next one is Pergamum. And the next one, I would like to hear what you have to say. But <laughs> Thyatira. Yeah. Thyatira. Yeah. We, we, as Justin just pointed out, we would probably say Thyatira, but that is not the way they pronounced it. Yeah, Thyatira. All right. Sardis. Now, I think you all know the next one, but remember, this is not Pennsylvania. <laughs> Philadelphia. There was a question on Jeopardy, was it Jeopardy just recently? Someone asked, what was the origin of language uh, that Philadelphia was named after or whatever? And it was Greek, obviously, Philadelphia. Not Pennsylvania. 
The last one is also a tongue twister. Lado Isa. Laodicea. So you pronounce, this is Latin, you pronounce the vowels independently. If there are two, you generally separate them. So it's Laodicea. Does that help? Smyrna. Smyrna. Look at the Y as if it were an I. R-N-A. Yeah. Smyrna. Yes. You mentioned that Daniel was multiple articles. Is that just uh, chapters 7 through 11, or is the whole book kind of written? The whole book is written that way. Almost independent articles for each chapter? Yes. 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 The book of Daniel is very interesting. Um, it is not very long, but it is very interesting. And much of it has been brought over into the New Testament, particularly the use of the phrase Son of Man. In chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, there is a vision, uh, and also in, I think it's also 7, no, well, one of the chapters, where the three Friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are tossed into the fire because they refuse to obey the king. And when the king goes to look to see how these two or three guys are being cooked, he sees that they are uh, walking around inside the fire and that there is another person in there with him or with them, and he looks like the Son of Man. Alright, that is referring to the Spirit of God who was in there. Remember, Daniel is not history. They're stories with an inspired message. The same way with the prophets. They are not always history, although they include a lot of history, but they are inspired messages and so you cannot take them literally you have to be aware (coughs) of the fact that they are apocalyptic language so you look for the message not necessarily the meaning of all of the uh, appearances so next week alone we will discuss the visions the whole purpose of the visions, what they're saying, and then we'll go through these letters here. All right. And don't worry about all the rest of the stuff. In time, we will bring it as we build upon it. All right. And that's what you have to do when you study scripture. Is you can't say, well, I finished that book, now I'm going to the next one, and I'll forget that one. You can't do that. The way scripture is written, it builds upon what has previously gone before it. And that's very, very true with Revelation. Because it tries to summarize and say, look friends, 
I've told you over and over and over, this is God speaking, of course, of how I would love to have you come back into my fold, my family, my home of heaven. But I've asked you to do certain things. Many of you have, but many of you haven't. And I've provided the way to correct that. Please take advantage of that so that at the end of your life you can come in to my house. Does that make sense? That's what revelation is all about. You don't have to worry about secret codes and the end of the world and all of that stuff. That's not there. It's not that important. Any other questions? No, uh, Mike just brought up a question that has been asked uh, often in the past. This will be ten consecutive weeks. To my knowledge, there will be no break. Now, on March the 15th, I believe, March the 15th, we will have to move just for that day into the evangelization center. Whatever, how you pronounce that. All right, whatever it's called. All right, because this whole room is going to be used uh, for another purpose. Okay, and that's already been scheduled long ago. And we've done that before. There's no big deal. Uh, about temporarily moving into another quarter. We won't have the tables. It'll be more theater style. But, you know, we have to make do. Okay. Now, occasionally, there will be a funeral reception. Of course, you never can depend on when that's going to be. So, uh, you, you just have to be flexible. And I think we can do that. We can manage. All right. Any questions? Yes, sir. Uh, the question is, is there anything in the book of Revelation that does have to do with the end of the world? Um, not so much the end of the world, but what is heaven alike? What is heaven all about? In the last two chapters, uh, actually, you've got more than that, uh, but primarily the last two chapters, is, in other words, this is what I want you to do in order to get to my home. But this is what my home is going to be like for you. So, no, there is nothing about the end of the world in the book of Revelation. No. Uh, there is a lot about things that have already happened. A lot of horrible things, but much of that has already happened. What's going on in the Middle East right now? And the terror attacks that are happening all over the world. That is in the book of Revelation, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of the world. It is a demonstration of what evil is all about. 
and one of our chapters, chapter 12, is on the war between God and Satan. And that is going on all the time. Uh, but those two protect, those two particular chapters <clears throat> bring in and make this a little more evident. And I will talk about what is evil and what is not, what is, what is good. Because they're good and evil are sort of the, uh, the end of each Good and evil are on the same line. It is the further away that you get from God, you go towards evil. Okay? (laughs) Just call me Rembrandt. (laughs) Yes, sir. Why did there develop such a divergence between the Protestant idea of revelation and the Catholic Well, I think the, the question here is why is there such a diversion between the Protestant idea and meaning or interpretation of revelation and the Catholic? And, and the idea really is hope. Versus uh, I'm trying to think of the proper word but they like well no the the Protestant version is people who revel in uh, fantasy you know revel in the unusual Uh, and they're trying to make something out of something that really isn't there But do you understand this idea here? The further away we get from God, we travel towards evil. And, you know, this is heaven. This is, unfortunately, the opposite. And it depends on where we are when we die. You know, if we are... At the halfway mark, be careful. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I've been past that already. You know? <laughs> but we have to constantly pray that we do not get down in this level. Would you say something about the same line? Would you say it would be like marriage would be an example of God's plan for marriage? The farther you get away from God's plan for marriage, because you're on the same, the same, probably the same, the same wavelength, you would be headed towards the evil. Well, yes. Uh, Mike's question about is marriage in the same way. This whole idea could be called love. Divine love. And as love diminishes, it becomes sin. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so, 
you have to be very careful. Marriage is the same way. You have a, you know, an almost divine type of relationship, but as your relationship deteriorates, if it deteriorates, and a bad relationship is hell on earth. I told you I'm not opposed to a funny now. All right. Yes, Mads. I can honestly say close to God, we don't have to fear a revelation. Amen. You're right. As long as we stay close to God, we don't have to fear what revelation says. You're right. Yes, that's true. Any other questions? Yes, Sarita. Yes. Well, that is not mentioned directly in the Bible, but in uh, Chronicles, the second book of Chronicles, it goes into what we would interpret as talking about. The question is about purgatory, but go ahead. Almost immediately, yes, almost immediately in the Catholic Church, the idea of purgatory, all right? Because, as I said before, we need to be purged. If we are down in this area someplace when we die and we haven't gone all the way, then we need to be purged of what has got to be resolved before we enter heaven. That's the purpose of purgatory. Uh, we cannot just say automatically flip a coin and if it's one side, it's heads heaven, and if it's the other side, you know, it's... No, no. No, God, in his infinite wisdom, is trying to the very utmost of bringing us back. But there is a limit. God has a limit to how far he will go. But purgatory is a big help along that way. Well, is there suffering in purgatory? Uh, That's an interesting point. Let me put it this way. When we die, theologians tell us, we will probably see the vision of the divine God's face. But we are told then whether or not we are good enough or clean enough or pure enough to enter heaven. If we are not, but not bad enough to be uh, condemned to hell, then purgatory is where we will have to wait. And in the whole idea of seeing that eternal beatific vision of the face of God and not being able to enjoy that for a while is suffering enough. So that suffering, you know, forget about the the guy with the pitchfork and the fire and, you know, no, the suffering will be internal. Okay? Uh, Anguish, anguish in itself. I tell the little story and 
those of you who have been with me for a few years have probably heard this a dozen times, but when I was uh, seven or eight years old, uh, one of my classmates had a party, birthday party. But at that time, during the Depression, he was only allowed to invite six other people, or six six friends. I was not included. I was devastated. I went home crying, you know. And my mother said, you know, don't worry about it. This too shall pass. I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> I wanted sympathy. But the idea of not being invited stuck with me and is in a way indicative of what heaven is or, or purgatory is. Yeah. And, you know, nothing happened to me but the idea that I wasn't invited. Yeah. And, you know, our kids are. Yes. Yeah, and many of the saints, Saint Teresa of Avila, also had a vision of hell and purgatory. Yeah. Uh, so we know that there is, but there is nothing officially written down as to a description or when. And my gut feel is, and I've had the privilege and misfortune, depending how you look at it, of having some several uh, of my family and loved ones die. And I found that the death in most of them lingered for a couple days before they totally expired. They were non-responsive for a couple days, but were still breathing. I figure that's when purgatory really happens. Uh, this is my own opinion. This is not church teaching. But I think it's reasonable to say that I believe that that's when purgatory happens because your sins happened on earth and therefore your punishment should be something that is related to this life, not afterwards. It's time. Let us end this meeting with a prayer and we will see you next week. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you and we ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forth trying to understand your last warning to us. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts as we read and study the book of Revelation. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.